Hi, this is Fresh Hell Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Johanna. And I'm Annie. Uh, we are babysitting a couple of dogs this week, so hopefully they'll keep their woofers on silent while we're recording. They're super cute, but one of them is very loud. Speaking of good woofers, how are Jam and Leela doing this week? They're always so good when we record. Yeah, they are good dogs. I mean, they barely ever make any loud noises. But if Jam barks, it's this cute beagle howl. Any, <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't bark like other breeds. They don't. They really yeah. don't. There's a um, there's I this made me think of this lady that walks. There's these two beagles, and she walks them every day uh, down the street. And when the other neighbor across the street's dogs are out, they'll bark at each other. And this one dog, the first time I had it, I sprinted out onto my front porch in my bare feet and pajamas because it sounded like someone was being murdered. He, <laughs> like the one beagle does have that traditional like ar mm-hmm. like hound bark, but then this other one is like ah. It's like it screams bloody murder. It's like, holy hell, what is that? Call 911. And like I ran outside and that's just how he barks. It's pretty crazy. I even know a dog sitter who wouldn't take in beagles because she says they are too loud. That's fair. Yeah, but I personally love the the special sound. I think (laughs) I I couldn't live without it anymore. And Jem hardly ever does it. Uh, Leela, on the other hand, she's quiet all day, but if she starts barking, she's like a screamer, really. Yeah. I hope you can't hear anything. Well, it's going on to summer. And in Vienna, that's traditionally the time where all the construction workers start to work. And we are surrounded by construction sites at the moment. So if you hear anything in the background, I'm so sorry. I'm actually hiding in my closet right now. Oh, no. uh, because it's the most quiet spot in our apartment. <laughs> Another thing, Annie, I think I didn't say it until now. I'm so, so, so thankful for the present you sent over. Guys, Annie had uh, Christmas ornaments made for me. They are hand-painted and they have Jem and Leela's portraits on them. And I'm, I was so amazed when I saw them. They are so beautiful. Yeah, super late for Christmas. But then anyone who knows me will tell you I am literally literally always late and uh, our friend Erica was uh, coming to visit me and then on her way to you so I had her mule them over for you but I'm so happy with the way those came out I'm actually ordering five of them for myself with all of our past dogs on them but her name is uh she's on etsy and her name is on etsy is robin winter design capital r capital w capital d robin winter design and uh yeah i i was amazed honestly at how well she captured sort of their spirits it's like leela has this happy face all the time and you can really see it in her eyes and it's so well done really i love them and i can't wait for christmas to come and put them on our christmas tree this year But enough from all that chit-chat. What fresh hell do you have for us today? Well, I had been trying to think of stories that I don't know that much about because I feel like like I know too much. You know, it's like when you're into this stuff, you're the same way. It's it's I get really excited if someone mm-hmm. says to me, do you know this story? And I don't. But then I realized that this one, well, it's an older crime and very infamous. At first, I really thought it was going to be very straightforward and this wouldn't be a very long episode, but it's actually a lot crazier than I first thought, you know, not unlike me. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Yeah, you're definitely crazier than you appear at first glance. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that's where we're friends. So what do you have for us today? Is it murder? Is it mystery? Is it mm, history or is it macabre? (laughs) Well, today I've got a murder and I think a lot of people would say that it's also a mystery. Today I'm going to cover the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. Yeah, that's a famous one. 
Yeah, it is. And I realized that there are all these jokes about it. It's a term people use in passing. I use it as a joke. And I don't actually know the details. Well, I do now, but I didn't when I started this. I couldn't even remember whether or not the baby was found safe. Uh, and I'll tell you now, in case it's a trigger for anyone, he is not found alive. And I just thought it was so funny because I said to you, you know, I'm going to do the Limbert baby. I didn't remember that he wasn't found alive. And then you immediately texted me the crime scene photos. <laughs> and again, this is why we're friends. <laughs> well, I, I think I didn't, te I didn't text them the photos immediately. I think I told you, yeah, if you want to see them, look them up because they, and I want to tell our listeners that too they are really graphic and if you're not like us and you would rather avoid those images we'll post all the the normal images on our social media as always but if you don't want to see those graphic images of the site where they found the baby avoid googling it it's not pleasant to look at no but if you're into it google it and you will see what we're talking about but of course that's why we're friends you said immediately oh i'm gonna look them up and then i sent you the link i think and yeah that's when you saw them that's and fun. i remember i read a book about the case that's a long time ago and i'm sure you have more details now for me today that i've never heard before I hope so, because this story really is insane, and there's just so much to cover, including Nazis. So let's get into it. Wait, Nazis, was it before or after they tried to get their hands on the Holy Grail? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that this story happens concurrently with the events unfolding in Indiana Jones, but <laughs> don't quote me on that. But first, we're going to need some just some historical background and context. So Charles Augustus Lindbergh was born in 1902 in Detroit, Michigan. He grew up on a farm in Minnesota, and he was the son of Charles August Lindbergh, who was a lawyer and congressman. And his mother was named Evangeline Lodge Land. Uh, she was a chemistry teacher. And actually, when Charles was older, she went back to school and got a master's degree from Columbia. So she's a smart cookie. In childhood, Lindbergh was something of a prodigy when it came to anything mechanical. He loved to take things apart and put them back together. A lot of kids like to do that, but he was really good at it. So it seems like maybe he took after his mom in the brains department there. He attended the University of Wisconsin to study engineering, but he was a lot more interested in the very exciting and still very new field of aviation than he was in his studies. After two years, I'm not sure if he actually left school or, or was asked to leave because he failed out of school. I read both things, but he either way, he left school to become a barnstormer, which I'm sure his parents were thrilled with. Okay, so he grew up in a he grew up in a rather well situated family, and he had all those possibilities to become whatever he wants, and he became what exactly? Yeah, a barnstormer. So after the First World War, there was this crazy fad about Americans doing and watching other people do horrifically dangerous stunts. <laughs> so you had people like riding unicycles on the ledge of a 12-story building or tightrope walkers with no nets walking between buildings. Barnstorming was the term used for when people did tricks and acrobatics and stunts on the wings of airplanes while they were flying. So Lindbergh was a wing walker. Wing walkers, you'd hear that term a lot. I think Breitling Watches actually still uses wing walkers in their ad campaigns. More than just that, he once did a, like he walked from one plane onto another plane while they were in midair. He parachuted from them. He just did all kinds of stunts and crazy stuff. I actually love it. It's kind of Evil Knievel meets Jackass meets Buster Keaton. And what I love, <laughs> 
even more is that nowadays all these kids with their smartphones and they take their videos doing some weird stunts, they would shit their pants if they would see what these guys were doing, I guess. Oh, I know. I know. I hate it, actually. It makes me so nervous when people do incredibly dangerous things for no good reason. Like, I could see, like, climbing out on a ledge to save your kid or your dog or whatever. But, like, why? Why are you going to walk on a rope between two perfectly good buildings with no net underneath there? Like, are you trying to kill your mother? Like, why would you <laughs> Why would you do that? It's just, ugh, I don't like it. So anyway, uh, in 1924, let's see, Lindbergh enlisted in the army. And in 1925, he graduated at the top of his class in the army's flight training school. Once he completed his army training, he was hired by the Robertson Aircraft Corporation out of St. Louis to fly the mail between St. Louis, St. Louis. I think it's St. Louis. Do you know? Um, Louis. I'm not American. I would say I St. Know. Louis, but okay. <laughs> All right, folks. Sorry. Now I'm not sure. I should have asked my mom. Um, okay, so anyway, St. Louis and St. Louis and Chicago. And the crazy thing about that was flying the mail, that job had a 75% mortality rate. Okay, wait, so he could leave the army immediately after he graduated. And again, afterwards, he chooses a job that's extremely dangerous. I'd say there's some kind of theme going on there in his life. Yeah, he definitely has very little regard for his own personal <laughs> safety. But at that time, the mail was actually delivered, flown by the Army Corps. He was still working for the Army, I think, when, when he was doing that. And he actually got a reputation as a very cautious and capable pilot. And the name, his nickname, his very famous nickname, Lucky Lindy, was given to him after he was forced to parachute to safety four different times, including twice when he was an airmail pilot. Yeah, so I guess those days as a stuntman did really pay off. Yeah, they did. But that's not what made him famous. What brought him crazy worldwide fame was winning the Ortigue Prize. So in 1919, a New York City hotel owner named Roger Ortigue offered $25,000, which would be about 363,000 US dollars or 322,000 euros today to the first aviator to fly nonstop from New York to Paris. This was a huge sum of money at that mm -hmm. time. A lot of people were trying and failing. Several pilots were killed or injured while competing. I saw a few videos and old newsreels of this, and it's just these like horrific fireball <laughs> because of the amount of fuel on board. So by 1927, eight years, and no one had actually won the prize. But Lindbergh thought that he could win if he had the right airplane. He persuaded nine St. Louis businessmen to help him finance the cost of a plane. Lindbergh chose Ryan Aeronautical Company out of San Diego to make the plane, which he helped to design. And he really cut every bit of weight he could out of this plane so that it would hold as much fuel as possible. He couldn't even see where he was going unless he used a periscope because the plane's front window area had been completely replaced with a gas tank. He named this plane the Spirit of St. Louis. That sounds super cozy. Yeah, right? I mean, nothing like a giant barrel of fuel in your face, <laughs> right? That's what we all want. On May 10th, uh, 1927, 50 years to the day before I was born, Lindy tested the plane by flying it from San Diego to New York City with an overnight stop in St. Louis. The flight took 20 hours and 21 minutes, and it was a transcontinental record. I don't even want to spend 20 hours in a modern airplane surrounded by high-tech entertainment systems. I know. It sounds awful, doesn't it? I feel like our, our most recent episodes lately, it's like, let's talk about how terrible long-distance travel is. <laughs> That's true. 
It sounds terrible, but it went really well. So Lindbergh is ready to try for the big money. No whammies. On May 20th, uh, Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field near New York City at 7.52 a.m. And he landed at Le Bourget Field near Paris on May 21st at 10.21 p.m. Paris time. He had flown more than 3,600 miles. That's 5,790 kilometers in 33 and a half hours or, oh, <laughs> 2,010 minutes because I'm converting everything now. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Lindbergh's heroic flight thrilled people throughout the world. When he landed, there were over 150,000 people there to witness it. It was insane. He was grabbed and lifted and hoisted above their heads and was sort of crowd surfing uh, for a while, whether he wanted to or not, while people celebrated his achievement. And we have a photo here we can post of the airfield when he landed. That's super crazy, though. I mean, that's a really long time to not be able to sleep or, you know, go to the bathroom you know i tried to find out exactly what he did about that i thought maybe he'd used a catheter i kept thinking like okay so the key to this flight is cocaine and catheters right both <laughs> easy in the 1920s no problem but all i could find was a story that when Lindbergh was in london king george v had thrown a party for him and the king asked him about what he had done so i found a quote that says, uh, quote, now tell me, Captain Lindbergh, there's one thing I long to know. How did you pee? End quote. So Lindbergh replied that he just felt really sorry for all those Frenchmen who had hoisted him above their heads after the flight. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. I think I told you that I was working as a flight attendant for a few years when I was younger and more adventurous. And after all those years working on airplanes, I have to say I really hate airplane toilets. But... Hearing this, I'm still beyond thankful that they exist. I know. I mean, does anybody love an airplane toilet, though? Really? Well, yeah. maybe people who want to join the Mile High Club. Oh, right. Did you ever encounter anybody doing that when you were nah. flying? But I was asked about it really on a regular basis. Like asked by men who wanted to know if you wanted to join with them or just do people do that? Yeah, both. Both. <laughs> All right. So back to the flight. This is a huge deal. He was honored with awards, celebrations, ticker tape parades. Songs are written about him. President Coolidge gave Lindbergh the Congressional Medal of Honor, and he also got the Distinguished Flying Cross. He is enormously famous around the world. So he's known as Lucky Lindy, also now known as the Lone Eagle. And it's really a household name. I'm not sure actually, that there's a modern comparison to his level of fame, just in terms of how well-known he was worldwide. By today's standards, he'd be more well-known than the Pope, more than Princess Diana. I mean, it was, it's it's really kind of next level, because you got to remember, this is, again, like you were saying, this is before we had all the forms of entertainment we have now. So this, it's just huge. So I have an image here of one of the parades for him, and this was just his own parade. You know what? Looking at this picture, they just don't make those awesome parades anymore, do they? You know, the kind of parade where confetti and paper streamers are all raining down on thousands and thousands of people. Not that we ever had those parades here in Austria, but I think you guys in the US, you used to be pretty epic about those. Yeah, the old ticker tape parades. It's just, yeah, I, I would love to experience. That might make me uh, go back to see a parade if we hadn't had one like that. You couldn't pay me to go out now and 
deal with all the crowds. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love all the old footage. It's so good. So in 1927, at the request of the U.S. government, Lindbergh embarked on a goodwill tour. He flew to several Latin American countries, and while he was in Mexico, he met Anne Spencer Morrow. She's the daughter of Dwight Morrow, the American ambassador to Mexico, and one of the wealthiest men in America. Anne is beautiful, well-educated, and loaded. And they were married in 1929 in a private ceremony at her family's estate in Inglewood, New Jersey. He taught her how to fly, and they went on a lot of flying expeditions together all over the world. They charted new routes for various airlines. And in 1930, she was the first American woman to get a glider pilot license. She sounds like a catch, and she seems to be the perfect girl for Lucky Lindy. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. She's also um, a very accomplished author. We'll talk a little bit more about that later because you might think that she really got a prize for her spouse when she married the lone eagle but I think really he was the lucky one again uh, when he married her and we'll get into that a little bit more in the epilogue so they're married they're happy and on June 22nd 1930 Charles and Anne have their first child a little boy they named Charles Lindbergh Jr. and he's also nicknamed uh, Little Lindy which is cute and the eaglet which is my favorite oh I love that and you know what I wish people would stop naming their kids stupid names and they would just go back to putting a junior at the end of their own names like they're done um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I guess this kid just had it all or yeah yeah it's funny because I'm the opposite I always thought junior was really odd like just give your kid his own identity overrated yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you would think this kid had it all but now we're in the middle of the great depression now he's not suffering but the rest of the country really is and the very very posh lifestyle the Lindberghs lead is constantly in the tabloids Colonel Lindbergh he's a colonel now he builds a home for them on a 390 acre estate in a remote part of New Jersey near Hopewell it was really hard to find so the tabloids couldn't get to them or just wouldn't bother and it had enough land for a private runway and while construction was still happening in parts of the house they spent uh, weekdays at his family's estate in Englewood, New Jersey, and they'd spend the weekends at this, the new house. A private runway. So he's the John Travolta of his days. Yes, so much bigger than Travolta, though. But he also does make some questionable lifestyle choices, beliefs-wise. But yeah. <laughs> at the end of uh, February 1932, the Lindberghs changed their normal routine for the first time in a long time. So, as I said before, they spent every week during the week at her family's estate, and they'd spend the weekends at the new house. But baby Charlie, who's now 20 months old, had a pretty bad cold. And so Anne decided that they would stay at the house an extra day or two just to give him a little bit more time to recover. And this is the first time that the family were home in their new home during the week. On the evening of Tuesday, March 1st, 1932, at around 7.30, Anne Lindbergh and Betty Gow, she's the nanny, they put the baby to bed in a flannel shirt that Nanny Gow had recently made for him and a sleeping suit, which is essentially what we would call here a onesie. At 8 p.m., the nanny checked in on baby Charlie and he was doing fine. Around 8.30 that night, Charles Lindbergh arrives back from business in New York to have dinner with his wife. Before retiring for the evening, around 10 p.m., Nanny Gao went back to check on the baby one last time and noticed his cot was empty. She went to check if either of his parents had him, and that's when they realized something was very, very wrong. 
Well, that's when they realized the baby was, in fact, gone. When he was questioned later, Lindbergh, who was in the room below the nursery, recalled having heard a noise around 9.15 that sounded to him like a crate falling on the floor in the kitchen, but he didn't investigate the noise at the time. You know, that's something that would never ever happen in my house. You know that my husband is a military man and whenever there's a noise somewhere, especially after dark, my husband always goes to investigate. My husband does too. Not always because our house makes a lot of weird noises. Yeah, true. (laughs) But every once in a while there'll be a noise where it's like, what was that? And then, yeah, he goes to investigate. So I agree. I think it's very strange that he did not Uh, investigate at the time when he heard that sound. But he does go up and he searches the nursery himself. He sees a note on the windowsill, which he did not touch, which is smart. And then he exclaims to everyone that the baby has been kidnapped. He tells the caretaker of the house to call the police at 1025 that night. And then he grabbed his rifle and made a quick inspection of the grounds. So news of the kidnapping spread very quickly and the estate was soon overrun with police and reporters. Lindbergh then contacted his close friend and lawyer, Colonel Henry Breckenridge, who arrived to insist with the investigation. When the police arrived, a search revealed footprints outside the nursery window, but unfortunately, because so many people had been there and no one immediately made a plaster impression of these footprints, they ended up being trampled over and lost forever. Uh, It's always the same in those old-timey cases. They have no common sense about how to handle a crime scene, but then, on the other hand, to be fair, this is still happening nowadays. Madeline McCann, anyone? I know. I know. It was a complete zoo. Uh, And so this later raised a lot of questions about the quality of the initial police investigation. But the police were just so in awe of Lindbergh that they allowed him to control the development of the case, which I really don't think would have happened with anyone else. So they did find some other evidence during the search, though. There were traces of mud on the floor of the nursery. They found a chisel and they found a broken ladder. The ladder was unique. It was homemade, and it was made in three sections, which were sort of nested together for carrying. So it's sort of a telescopic three-piece nesting ladder. And so two sections of the ladder had been used to reach the baby's window. And they could tell this because there were some scrapes on the right side of the window on the exterior of the house. One of the two sections of that ladder had been split, um, so the wood broke a little bit where it had joined the other piece. And they thought that the ladder had broken when the kidnapper or kidnappers had used it. There was no blood anywhere in the nursery. There also were no fingerprints, not even the fingerprints you'd expect to find, like the nannies and the mothers. There were no fingerprints at all. It was clear that the room had been wiped down. The Limbird family also had a little Boston Terrier uh, named Wagoosh. He was reported to be a very neurotic and yappy dog who barked at any strange sound or person, which is very much like our tiny little princess Sophie that we're watching this week. So for me, this is just very strange because the dog never barked at all that night. This is indeed super strange. I mean, it would not be strange for our dogs because Jem and Leela, they would actually sell me for a bite from a Liberty Summer. Did I ever tell you the story when our weird but ultimately harmless neighbor once crawled into our garden in the middle of the night? No. Yeah, he had his uh, satellite antenna is facing our garden and he apparently crawled in to fix it in the middle of the night. That was shortly after we moved here. So the dogs, they didn't really know him. Yet they made not one sound. Nothing. (laughs) 
But I guess for the Screaming Boston Terrier, it seems really unusual to not bark all of a sudden. What did the ransom note say? The ransom note was dusted for prints. There was nothing there. And then we are going to upload. Um, I sent you pictures of the ransom note because it's there's a lot to talk about with this note. So I'll read it first and then we'll discuss. So the note says, quote, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready. $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making any ding public or for notifying the police. The child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. When I say the indication are the signature and three holes, the signature is actually a drawing. It's sort of a bunch of concentric circles with wavy lines down the side. And then there's three dots. They look like dots when you see the picture, but they're actually hole punches as part of the design. And so this was done to make sure that the communications from the kidnapper were authentic. So because you know there's going to be a million hoaxes, right? Mm -hmm. But the grammar of the letter itself, it's so strange. And it was actually really hard for me to read. The dollar sign is in the wrong place. So in the letter, it says, dear sir, exclamation point. And then it says, have 50,000 and then dollar sign after the number. And all the numbers have the dollar sign after. And that's just It looks so strange to me. You'll see when you guys take a look at it. And then there are certain things that are spelled wrong. So the word money is M-O-N-Y. And then the word anything is spelled A-N-Y-D-I-N-G. I don't know. That sounds like phonetically writing the way it would sound if you were speaking with an accent. And then also the word gut, G-U-T, instead of good for care. So they think that probably it's by somebody German. So do me a favor, Johanna, and say the word anything. I'm curious to see if it sounds like. That's a little bit ridiculous. I mean, anything, anything you hear, it's nothing like in the letter. Any, no, that actually does sound a little bit like the letter. No, it doesn't at all. <laughs> anything? It's, mm. No, I'm joking. Obviously, I would say anything. But, um, <laughs> anything, yeah. yeah. You know, um, about the dollar sign being in the wrong place, that's funny because uh, I only realized a couple of weeks ago that you guys put the currency sign in front of the amount. We over here put it in the back. Yeah, it's just strange. It's really yeah. strange the way it was done. So it, it is a lot of German. The gut definitely is German, the, the, the way it is right whole, because that's also with the silent age. That's something typical German. I had no problem at all reading that, really. It yeah. made complete sense to me. I mean, I knew it's wrong. You know what I mean? It's I just, do. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of the initial thought was that this is written by somebody with a German background. So the morning after the kidnapping, the authorities notify the president about the crime. That's how big this guy is, right? Can you imagine? So yeah. at that time, kidnapping was classified as a state crime and the case didn't really have any grounds for federal involvement. But there was a conference with the attorney general, the FBI director, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover, and he had contacted the headquarters of the New Jersey State Police. And he officially informed them that the U.S. Department of Justice would allow Colonel 
H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, any assistance and cooperation needed. Um, he told the police that they could call upon the Bureau for anything at all that they required to help them solve the case. The FBI, the, well, the Bureau of Investigation, which would later be the FBI, was kind of amusing those two terms interchangeably, was authorized to investigate. And the U.S. Coast Guard, the U.S. Customs Service, the U.S. Immigration Service, and the Washington, D.C. Police were all told that their services might be required. Can you imagine, like, yeah. for one missing baby? That's I mean, don't huge. get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not important that a baby was missing, but They wouldn't do it for any other baby. No, no. New Jersey officials announced a $25,000 reward for the safe return of little Lindy, and the Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000 reward of their own. At this time, so the total reward was $75,000, which is the equivalent of about $1.4 million U.S. dollars today. So, yeah, a ridiculous ridiculous amount of money because the nation was in the middle of the Great Depression. Yeah, well, I mean, he was the baby of the national treasure. That's why I say, obviously, they pulled all the resources they had. That's it. Yeah, the little eaglet. Everybody, yeah, he was sort of America's baby. And, oh, did you recognize them? Do you know the name uh, H. Norman Schwarzkopf? I don't know. I honestly would not expect you to, but because your husband is in the military, you might. Um, Honestly, no, I just can tell you that it's another German name. Yeah, so his son, uh, Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf Jr., was also known as Stormin Norman, and he was the general in command of coalition forces in the first Gulf War under the first President Bush. You know, the good one. So, although these days the second Bush isn't looking so bad. Well, you see, it's all relative in the in the run of time. <laughs> it really is. This is interesting. So Lindbergh believed that his son was in the hands of professional kidnappers. He thought maybe it was the mob. The police, however, didn't think this was the case. They believed that a family employee had to be involved in some way. And the reason they thought this was that the ransom was relatively small, considering how much the family was worth. And they thought there had to be some insider knowledge involved, like the exact location of the nursery and the fact that the Lindberghs had made a last minute decision to extend their weekend stay because they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. And then Lindbergh and Breckenridge really discouraged the police from active investigation They just wanted to meet the demands the kidnappers had made, and they really thought that was the best way to secure the release of the baby. And I get that. $50,000 is nothing to this family. They just want their kid back. Okay, and do the police agree? No. So despite being asked to stay out of it and let them just pay the ransom, household and estate employees were vigorously questioned. They were um, deeply investigated. And Colonel Lindbergh, though, he doesn't want to wait. He doesn't want the police to find, you know, take their time and investigate and figure it out. He just wants to pay the ransom and get the baby back. So he asked his friends to communicate this publicly to the kidnappers. And they made widespread appeals for the kidnappers to begin their negotiations. So So all of his friends are saying, you know, publicly, this is just everywhere in the news. They're going to pay the ransom. Just tell them where to pay the ransom. The same day, the day after the kidnapping, from his cell in the Cook County Jail in Chicago, Scarface Al Capone offers a ward of $10,000 for information that would lead to the capture of the kidnappers and the baby's safe return. With uh, what the Al Capone offered a reward. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Al Capone. So the gangster had been in jail for three or four months after being sentenced to an 11-year sentence in the state penitentiary for income tax evasion, and his case was on appeal. So in the Washington Post, uh, March 11, 1932, he's quoted as saying, quote, I know how Mrs. Capone and I would feel if our son were kidnapped, and I sympathize with the Lindberghs, end quote. But compassion, I don't think, was the only aspect of his offer. He just really wanted to get out of prison. So he asked for a temporary release from jail in order to use his influence to search out the abductors. Uh huh. And then there was a, a March 3rd, 1932 article in the Los Angeles Times that said, quote, If I were out of jail, I could be of real assistance. I have friends all over the country who would aid in running this thing down. End quote. Now that you mention it, it, it always makes me laugh when I remember that in the end, they only got him for tax evasion. I know, me too. I love it. At least they got him. <laughs> yeah, true. So, and then after police completely ignored his initial offer to help, Al Capone then made a whole bunch more pleas over the course of the next two months. He even offered to put up $200,000 bail, and he offered to swap places with his <laughs> younger brother in jail so that they could hold him as a hostage so that he could be freed on bond. It's crazy. Despite how bonkers this is, his proposals to save the Lindbergh baby made it to the Senate floor. Some senators speculated that the baby was kidnapped by an associate of Al Capone just for the premeditated purpose of getting old Scarface out of the slammer. <laughs> I don't know, though. I mean, I can see somebody might come up with this theory, but it seems so unlikely to me. They didn't let Capone go, right? No, it was a hard pass. So in the end, all of his offers were rejected. But on March 4th, 1932, they get the second ransom note. And it's shocking. It's postmarked from the Bronx in New York. And it was received complete with that interlocking circles signature. And it upped the ransom demand to $70,000 because Lindbergh had ignored the instructions in that first note not to contact the police. And now they want him to pay more. I think it was the right move to contact the police, though. You know, whenever I see thrillers where the family complies to the kidnapper's demand and do not contact the police at all, I always yell at them and I say, no, what are you doing? This is not going to work out. Uh, Yeah, I know. I know. You just really always want to call the police in this sort of situation. And this is actually the beginning of an epic exchange of ransom notes. It's crazy. So the third ransom note was received by Colonel Lindbergh's attorney. He got it on March 8th. That ransom letter informed them that anybody appointed by the Lindberghs would not be accepted. And they requested that there be a note placed in the newspaper. That same day, as they got that note, 72-year-old man named Dr. John F. Condon, he's a retired teacher, and this has to be a quote from another source, but I have self-proclaimed civic advocate, (laughs) so whatever that means, we know what that means. He's the guy who wrote letters every week to the editor of the paper, right? You know, the guy who just has an opinion about everything and writes all the time, and some of those guys are great. There are certain names I recognize when I read the letters to the editor, but He's one of them. He enters our story, and I just, I find this so bizarre. Dr. Condon wrote an open letter to the kidnappers in which he asked the kidnappers to turn the baby over to a Catholic priest, which, that I get. He also offers to act as a go-between, and it was published 
a week after the kidnapping. So he calls himself Jaffsey, and Jaffsey is short for uh, his initials, John F. Condon, J.F.C., so Jaffsey, and that's what he's known as. And he says he'll add an extra $1,000 of his own money to the ransom being demanded if the kidnappers would contact him directly to act as the intermediary. Wait, 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 wait. Was this just some weird stranger who had nothing to do with the case or Lindbeck before? Why would they all of a sudden accept his offer? I know. Yes, he was somebody who greatly admired. He was a huge fan of Lindbergh's. But yeah, he's a complete stranger. And I just find it so strange. But uh, according to Condon, they did contact him. Okay, I get it's more money, but it still doesn't make a lot whole of sense to me that the kidnappers would now trust Mr. Who are you again? I know. I think the kidnappers must have trusted him because they, he was offering even more money. And I think Lindbergh, I honestly don't know why Lindbergh would trust him at all. I mean, you're one of the most powerful men in America with connections in every branch of law enforcement and the military. And some random old guy from the Bronx is now in charge of dealing with the people who kidnapped your baby. Right. I, I can't get past how crazy it is. I liked the Catholic priest idea. That was a smart one. The the priest would keep the secret as a part of confession rights. That is smart. Yeah, I thought that was smart, but that's of course not what happens. So Condon calls Lindbergh, and once he tells him about the interlocking circle signature on the thing, then Lindbergh has to agree that, yes, it's a genuine communication. And so he invites Condon to come to his home, and they decide that Condon would place an ad in the newspaper telling the kidnappers that the ransom money had been prepared and they were ready to make the exchange. So much communicating through the classified ads in the newspapers. It's all very desperately seeking Susan, isn't it? Right, I'm just waiting over here for Madonna to pop up looking all 80s fabulous. So <laughs> what happened next? So on March 12th, around 8.30 p.m., the doorbell rings at Dr. Condon's house and he opens the door and there's a cab driver there and he hands him the fifth ransom note. This message stated that another ransom note was hidden beneath a stone in a vacant stand about 100 feet from a subway station. Oh my God, this is getting so ridiculous. Next, Robert Langdon is getting involved. Right? Robert Langdon, Jack Ryan, Jack Bauer even shows up. But no, <laughs> that's an old rando from the Bronx. So Condon reads this sixth ransom note, follows the instructions, and heads to Woodlawn Cemetery, where he meets an unidentified man who called himself John. This man is now and forever known as Cemetery John. Aha, uh -huh. the Frito Fancy. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It's just Cemetery John in German. <laughs> that doesn't sound anything like it. <laughs> Love it. Cemetery John wants to be paid, and Dr. Condon insists that they're not going to pay anything unless they have proof that this man does, in fact, have the eaglet. And that makes sense. The Cemetery John's like, oh, all right, that's fair. We'll send proof. Condon was accompanied by a bodyguard during these meetings, except when he was talking to Cemetery John, which is weird, because you think that that's when he'd need it the most. During the next few days, Dr. Condon keeps repeating his advertisements in the newspaper, urging further contact and stating his willingness to pay the ransom. On March 16th, a baby's sleeping suit, that onesie, arrives, along with a seventh ransom note, and those were received by Dr. Condon at his home in the Bronx. And I'm j I joke about the Bronx, but I'm not just in the Bronx. It's all good. So the suit was delivered to uh, Colonel Lindbergh, and it was identified as being the uh, onesie that the baby had been uh, put to bed in the night he was taken. Condon continues his advertisements in the newspapers saying, we'll pay, we'll pay that. 
On March 29th, Nanny Gao found baby Charlie's thumb guard near the entrance to the estate. He was wearing this at the time of the kidnapping, and I had to look up to see what the, the kind of, it almost looks like if you took the metal cage, if you opened a bottle of champagne, and then you took the cork out, and you've got that sort of metal cage thing that's still left. They kind of look like that, don't they? That looks not so pleasant actually and I mean everybody knows you have to put quinine on a toddler's thumb and they'll stop sucking it soon enough I mean at least that's what Mrs. Merriweather says in Gone with the Wind <laughs> I think that's like what my uh, I was I admit I was a horrific thumb sucker like way past any age that I should have been sucking my thumb and my parents tried everything including I wonder if it did have quinine in it there was some like nail polish stuff they used to paint my thumb with mm-hmm. and I- or bed. Oh, it's just so bitter. Yeah. Uh, I learned to enjoy the taste, though. Um, <laughs> fortunately, they, they never locked that wire thing down on my thumb. So thanks for that, guys. Yeah, this business with the ransom note goes on for a while. And there's more negotiating through newspaper ads, telling him, uh, you know, go here, go there to find more notes. After they did get that sleeping suit, though, Lindbergh did make arrangements to have the ransom money prepared. And What they did is they made the numbers of the individual notes. They noted them all down so that they could be tracked later, but they didn't mark the bills in any way. They just made notes of all the serial numbers. Finally, on April 2nd, 1932, following the instructions called for in that 12th, and I'm happy to say, for the sake of all our sanity, the final ransom note. Hallelujah. Right? Lindbergh drove Condon to the designated drop point another cemetery in the Bronx called St. Raymond's and Cemetery John summoned Condon over with a shout of, Hey doctor, which was heard by both Condon and Lindbergh. Condon goes and met with the man he believed to be the same man he knew as Cemetery John to pay the ransom. $50,000 was handed to the stranger in exchange for a receipt because you got to get your kidnapping receipt. (laughs) Got to save those for tax time. And the 13th note, which (laughs) was not a ransom though, but there was one more note containing instructions that the baby could be found on a boat named the Nellie, located near the island of Martha's Vineyard off the coast of Massachusetts. Lindbergh gets in a plane and he flew for more than two hours over the area described in the note and again the next day, but he never found it and he was forced to admit they'd been tricked and they were back to square one. But they had the eaglet sleeping suit. You mean they made everything up and they didn't even have Lindbergh Jr.? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. I know, it's awful. On May 12, 1932, A delivery truck pulls over so that his assistant can go into the woods to relieve himself. It's there, about four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home, 45 feet from the highway near Mount Rose, New Jersey. And this poor man, Mr. William Allen, finds the body of the Lindbergh baby and they immediately call the police. So the body was found face down and had been severely damaged by both time and animal activity. So there was a lot of decomposition. The baby was missing parts of the left leg and hand that were probably taken off by scavengers. Because of decomposition, it wasn't uh, possible to immediately say whether the victim was male or female. But the next day at the morgue, the body was positively identified by Lindbergh and Nanny Gao as Charles Lindbergh Jr. The identification took less than three minutes and was based on a small deformity of the toes on the remaining right foot and an article of clothing found with the body. It was the sleeping shirt the nanny had made and she had made it so she recognized it as, you know, the one she had made. They also counted the number of teeth the baby had. 
I thought it was interesting that the baby's pediatrician, who also went to identify the body, claimed that there was no way he could possibly be certain that the baby was Charles, given the extent of decomposition. I think it's nearly impossible to say for sure that this is your baby by looking at it for a few minutes, at least not in the state this body was in, don't you think? I do. I know. And it's hard because on the one hand, you can understand. So if, if that is your baby and it's, as, you know, this badly decomposed body, that's got to be just such a difficult thing to look at. So you could yeah. understand why they just as quick, they're not going to waste any time, right? They're going to, you know, do it as quickly as they can. But the identification just isn't that detailed. I mean, the autopsy that was conducted was very brief. It was less than a page of information. We'll post a copy of it. Maybe most significantly, though, the coroner's examination showed that the child had been dead for about two months and that the death was caused by a blow to the head. Wait, but That means Charles Lindbergh Jr. had been killed right away, maybe even immediately after the kidnapping. I mean, seeing how close the Lindbergh residence was. So all of this back and forth all the time, that was a scam? Yeah, it seems like it. All of that cat and mouse games with the ransom notes and the choose your own adventure bullshit. <laughs> and the baby had been dead the whole time. It's just, it's awful. I mean, that's, that's really fucking disgusting. Those poor parents. But at least they had the body and could start to get closure. Was there a huge funeral with thousands of guests attending? No, I thought there would be too. So Lindbergh ordered an immediate cremation and the ashes were scattered into the Atlantic Ocean. So yeah, they didn't do anything. It's Isn't that weird? It's weird. I know. I think it's really strange. It just doesn't make any sense to me why they would not do anything. And I think that's probably a good place to stop for today. And next week, we'll cover the investigation, the arrest, the trial, and some of the conspiracy theories uh, surrounding this case. Uh, okay, I have to let this sit now for a few days and really let it sink in. But I can't wait for the next week, though, and all the theories about this case. Thanks, Annie. Oh, it was my pleasure. Yeah, this case is really strange. There are a ton of theories, and uh, hopefully we'll touch on the big ones. Thanks again so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really does help us a lot. We love to hear from you, so please say hi. Our website is freshhellpodcast.com. There you find all the links to our social media, to all the podcast platforms, to YouTube, to everything, to our Instagram, where you find all the photos posted. And you can also leave a message or send an email there. Please do. We love to hear from you. And as always, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye.